0: today beginning with verse 13. And the thought carries forward from some things we developed last time. I will tell you this, and that as a preacher I'm sometimes amazed and I'm always reminded that the ministry belongs to the Lord because I did not, honestly not, manipulate in any way to have this subject and this text before us on a presidential inauguration weekend. I only, a couple weeks ago, looked ahead and said, oh, look at that, inauguration weekend. Listen to God's word here as he speaks through Peter for all time. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for that, you endure, and this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in his steps. This is God's word. In the heat of 2016's contentious presidential election, one of the worst I'm sure that most of us have seen in our lifetimes for pure vitriol and accusation and heat on both sides More than one liberal-minded Hollywood star was heard to affirm that if Donald Trump was ever elected, which they could not imagine happening, they would move to Canada. Well, my personal estimate is that we as a nation might actually benefit greatly if some of those promises were carried out, and some of the smirking superiority of cultural icons whose only fame is to adorn a movie screen or a TV screen, might actually have moving vans pulling up at their homes heading for Toronto. But I actually doubt that it will happen. Months ago, though, I also heard conservative Christians make a similar declaration that if Hillary Clinton won the presidency, they would no longer want to live in our country. Now, we might sympathize with people who feel that way, but I want to pose a rhetorical question that might be surprising. Do you think that fleeing from a ruler of any kind that you do not personally support can be justified as a biblically-based action? If you were paying attention to what I read today, you would have to say no. A believer should not flee from a ruler they do not personally endorse And in fact, to do so, according to our text, might be defying the will of God, who urges us here in 1 Peter 2 to remain under an offensive government or one we consider offensive and humbly submit to even an ungodly ruler because that person is labeled in the Scripture here as God's sovereignly appointed representative. God's advice in 1 Peter 2 is, is not an urging for Christians to burrow into their evangelical gopher hole and say, well, I'm too pious to enter into the filth of politics. I'll just be spiritual and try to ignore it all. No, that's not what we're told to do here. Nor are we told to mount an armed rebellion and throw bombs in the street over when we're discussing rulers who were duly elected. Our calling is neither despair nor flight. Instead, Peter conveys a rallying cry here that says God's elects exiles, and we've been called that several times in this book so far, God's chosen believers in the world may be dwelling in a strange land, but they are called to pursue lives of outstanding virtue, humble integrity, and civic excellence for the glory Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, last time I spoke mostly from chapter 2, 11, and 12, and then brought in 16 also. And this time we started at 13, but 16 is equally a theme statement of this continuing text. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as bond slaves is a good word. Or servants of God. True freedom does not mean kick up your heels and saying, I did it my way. It does not mean you are the arbiter of all things political in the world and your way has to go or you leave and wash your hands of it. As a matter of fact, true freedom is defined here in Scripture by making choices as new creations in Christ when we can do that not out of the obligation or the painful uh, onus that God's law is a heavy burden on us, but rather knowing that the things we ought to do, because God has told us, are now things we want to do as new creatures in Christ. And therefore, we're doing them to please our God and Savior. We're urged here to live upstanding, actually excellent, moral lives, not being controlled by low-grade passions. That was back up there in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh which do war against you. You can do that by your new nature in Christ, not perfectly, not all the time, but you have the basic power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. And so we can choose to be conformed to the law of God many times, finding that Righteous living builds up and builds up in our lives, and we have the delight of learning to do the things of God until they are more and more habit-forming for us. We have to live with blameless excellence before a pagan society that doubts that anybody can do that. And our faith should make us into the finest kind of praiseworthy citizens. You see, The problem was these folks scattered throughout Asia Minor were unwelcome in their society. They were recognized as Christians. People thought they were a little bit freaky, uh, you know, a little bit uh, not all that smart perhaps. And so they were excluded from many things socially and politically in their lives. Peter says, all the better. Show them that you as resident aliens among them are the most truly free people because, first and foremost, you are in a delightful state of bondage to God. So today we continue this, this thought about Christians using their freedom in two areas, giving two points. First, our subjection to the authority of civil government, which, as I said, is obviously timely right now for our nation. And secondly, the idea that the Christian subjection to authority, also enters into the workplace. First of all, Christian freedom calls us to wise subordination to God-appointed government. Look at 13 through 15 again. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of the Lord. Not just good civic policy, the will of the Lord. Now, I think God's word via Peter is quite surprising here. Being subject to someone who rules in high office over us, whether we voted for that person or not, whether we like that person or not, Peter says, honor the emperor, and these are not our natural ways, are they? In a democratic republic, our ways are, my candidate is the best, yours is terrible, and once yours is elected and mine is not, I am not obliged to extend to him any respect or maybe not even obedience. I'll make a confession to you, my wife knows this, that during all eight years of Bill Clinton's presidency, I made it a decided practice, you think of me whatever you want, that I did not put in the same sentence the two words, President Clinton. I would speak of Clinton, usually, and just say that. Why? Because I saw a man who was obviously immoral, not my evaluation alone, A devious man who the Congress impeached, Senate did not follow, a man who I didn't think was worthy of my respect. And you know, I have to say today, I think I even have to publicly confess that I was sinning. I was sinning against the president by not giving him even the basic honor that God says here he deserved not because I voted for him or didn't vote for him, I didn't, but because God put him there. You know, it's stunning to understand that this passage we're looking at, who was the highest authority that Peter was being called to honor? This is about A.D. 60 to 63, and we believe Peter died approximately 65 or 66 in Rome with the same man on the throne as when he wrote this a few years earlier. Nero, Caesar. Go study your Roman history. Nero was, almost without a doubt, the worst of the Roman emperors in terms of violence, in terms of unpredictable, almost lunatic level acts. He wiped out anybody who disagreed with him. In the later, strongest time of his persecution, he killed tens of thousands of Christians, including the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, both victims of Nero's persecution, probably less than four years after Peter wrote these words. Is is that amazing? If Peter had it to do over again, you know, if he had a crystal ball and said, this emperor that I'm saying honor is going to kill me, would he still have written honor the emperor? I believe he would have because he wasn't making a political statement here. He was making a statement of divine principle. The larger principle was, it doesn't matter who the individual is. The office has been ordained by God, the office of those who rule countries or subordinate governors or mayors or or whoever you might be talking about, senators, state representatives. The Scripture is saying here, God Almighty is the only sovereign. And he is the source of all human government. And by his providence, he works and rules even through some of the worst possible individuals. We are being asked to have regard for the office that God has established, not necessarily saying we're going to approve everything the individual man or woman has in their character or lack thereof. Romans 13 is the other big text from the New Testament to bring alongside First Peter 2, a text where Paul agreed with Peter saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Romans thirteen six follows by saying, the authorities are the ministers of God. For they carry out his wrath against wrongdoers and bring commendation on those who do what is right. First Peter 2:14 sounds almost the same thing. It says, "He will punish those who do evil and praise those who do good." At least ideally, justly, a ruler will do that. First Timothy 2:2 therefore urges Christians to pray for kings and all who are in high authority. Certainly prayer for anyone in any level of leadership is greatly needed because the higher the leader is, the more he needs gifts and powers that he doesn't possess of himself. He needs humility. He needs discernment. He needs wisdom. He needs courage. And the higher the office goes, the greater the needs. I would wonder if it might enter into the mind of our new president, that a place where he should spend 10 to 15 minutes every single morning is banish everyone out of the Oval Office, go in his face on the carpet, and say what any one of us, I'm not implying he has to say it any more than anyone else, Oh God, I am a miserable, weak, lost sinner. I come before you and I pray for your almighty power and your spirit to do in me this day what I cannot possibly do myself. Would to God we could have a president do that and have that kind of humility and strength. Isn't that why we celebrate a Lincoln the way we do? Why is Lincoln the one that's the the brooding, seated, huge statue looking out across the Washington Mall, and people go in there in that memorial and act almost like they're in a church? Here are the words of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and of other addresses that he gave, and here's this somber, seated man, and we come before him, and just about anyone who's an American says, wow, there was a president. There was a president who knew that his strength came from humility and from serving the people of God. Notice verse 17 says, honor the emperor, but then it differentiates by saying, Fear God. God is given the higher level of respect than any human office, whether it be a president, a governor, a senator, a mayor, a judge, a police chief, a pastor. Honor that person, but fear God. Scripture says leaders who stand in the places where God puts them are going to face something that maybe many of you are not. That is a higher standard of judgment one day for the things that they do. They are going to give account for careless acts, for unjust acts, for oppressing the poor, for ignoring the weak and helpless. And those who rule by means of injustice or or violence, who trample on the defenseless, who fill up their bank vaults with ill-gotten gains and bribes, they are going to face condemnation and exclusion from the blessing of God in eternity. How do we honor them? Well, here's one you don't like, but it's seasonal. You pay your taxes. You serve in the armed forces. You vote in elections with a sense of privilege that you can do that, not just the big ones for president, but the the smaller elections too. You hear the things that they call for. And you may say, in my mind, I, I don't agree with that, but if it becomes the law of the land, I will abide by the law of the land. Honoring the top rule in a country, the top office in the country, does not exclude the idea of writing letters in opposition to the editor or to assemble peacefully a, right, a march for life like is organized and intended, I believe, the end of this week in Washington. It isn't wrong for you to work for a political party or to go to town meetings to make your voice heard about a zoning hearing that maybe affects you in a negative way. There are many things you can do besides just sitting still and nodding your head that honor the leader. But the ultimate thing at the end of the day is reverence for the rule of law and those who are the dispensers of law. Reverence for that because why? We're ultimately reverencing God who put that imperfect person in that place. Now, we could ask, and it's a big subject I have no time to really go into, isn't there some time when I can disobey the ruler? Isn't there some time when civil disobedience might be my action? The answer to that is yes. It's not answered here in 1 Peter 2 because it just was not a subject Peter was considering, but the Bible elsewhere says, indeed, there are times when you would have to disobey the edict of a leader that is over you. And the main theme there is when that leader tells you to disobey laws of God. If the state commands, for example, that parents that conceive a third child, they'll say, maybe the government said, this hasn't happened in America, of course, but the government says you can have two children. And if you conceive a third, you must abort. You must defy that law because that is a defiance of the law of God. In Exodus 1, we know the Lord put his blessing on Hebrew midwives who hid the baby boys who Pharaoh had said kill them. And God commended the courage of those who hid them when they were born. We must obey the state except when it commands us To endorse wickedness or sin. In Acts 4.18, there's another example where some self-important rulers in Jerusalem told the apostles, we don't want to hear you on the street corner speaking this name of Christ and this gospel of His. Don't do it. Don't speak. Immediately, the apostles went out and spoke the name of Jesus on every street corner saying, we must obey God rather than man. And if man tells us to disobey God, we must disobey man. You study the life of a tremendously courageous Christian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who joined himself as a very promising young theologian and pastor in a plot to murder Hitler. Oh, my goodness, there's a pastor getting involved in politics. Bonhoeffer helped those who sought to kill Hitler as a Christian because he believed he was in the ultimate way and the only way that was going to stop him removing a man who is wedded to evil of the very worst kind. Well, that's a, civil disobedience is a large subject and it's not our subject today. But just know that, of course, the Bible does recognize if the civil ruler says, sin, you say, no, I will not sin at your command. Now, secondly, you extend the same basic principle into the following text here of the workplace, the the economic relationships we have, and see that Christian freedom calls us to have excellent conduct in the workplace. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Now, this text was ripped out of context in horrible ways, in days when people used this to tell slaves, your masters have a right to do anything they want to you. And that is absolutely not what this text is talking about because it is not even addressed to slaves in the sense that you think of slavery as it existed in early America. It is not a race-based slavery that is addressed here. We know with certainty that they were addressing servants who were mostly indentured servants, people who had been maybe moved or dislocated as refugees and maybe they were well educated they many of them were teachers or lawyers or architects or carpenters or or great cooks or something else and they would have their have a passage paid for them or other costs paid by someone to whom they would then be an indentured servant for a period of time much the same as you go to the naval academy and you owe the U.S. Navy a certain number of years of service before you're free because they gave you a free education. That's what we're talking about here. And Peter's interested not so much in those who have kind and fair masters, but those who have masters who are not kind and not fair, who are, in fact, possibly cruel or difficult to please. Many of us I'm sure perhaps almost all of us at some time have worked a job in our lives where we were, had someone over us that wasn't very pleasant, to say the least. Maybe they were cruel, they were, you know, had maladjusted personalities or bad character traits or were just downright mean. And I know that some of you are facing such people where you work even now. It's a problem, isn't it, to go to work and know that it's hard to please the manager who's over you. Or they seem to have it in for you. And how do you face that? Well, one way to face it is to let yourself be lowered to their level and start reacting in your resentment and your anger and reporting late to work and leaving early and doing sloppy work because you say, I don't care whether I please this person or not. Guess what? He's one. The alternative is suggested by Peter. Make yourself such an excellent employee that he has nothing to criticize. That less and less can he find anything about your work to say you're doing it wrong and in fact he will have to grudgingly say this employee I can spare the least of any that I have. And guess what you've done? As a Christian, quite possibly he knows you're a Christian. You have shown him that you are serving the one who employs him. You are serving the employer's employer, God Most High. It's much like the principle Paul cited in Romans 12 when he said, you will heap burning coals on your enemy's head by your excellent behavior as you overcome evil with good. The key phrase is, do this conscious of God. You're not doing it for the employer or the manager who's an ugly guy to deal with. You're doing it conscious of God, choosing his good pleasure. And actually, think of it, you might be preparing yourself for a day when you will be the one in authority. For if your work is excellent, chances are you'll be promoted. You might come to be the manager or the vice president of sales, and you'll have the responsibility of acting justly. Hopefully, you will have learned what humility is as you moved up the ladder so that you can do what is right for those employed by you. Folks, in conclusion, no man or woman in either the White House or a State House or a mayor's house is a prime model of human leadership. They're all fallen. We all, every pastor you know is fallen and weak. Only Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, occupies a throne of impeccable servant leadership. But it is Christ, by his Spirit, who works in us, who engages us to peacefully work within our culture in such a way that they don't say, look at those freaky Christians over there. What nuts they are. Hopefully, they will say, wow, those people do things in the name of their God and they're the most excellent citizens that we can find. This may seem unrelated, but I think it is related as I close with this. You may know the name of Christopher Wren as one of the great architects of England of a prior centuries. Even today, Christopher Wren's great houses, government buildings, churches are pointed out as masterpieces of the architect's work. And the thing that seemed to make Christopher Wren excel was that he was known for attention to detail and every little thing being done with excellence. For example, if he was uh, doing a church and there were to be sculpted figures of the prophet Isaiah or an angel or something on on a tower of the church, Wren instructed his workmen to carve the finest detail into the hair and the back of the head of the statue as to the face which people saw the hair wasn't viewed by the public but Wren said I want that to be every bit as accurate and well detailed as what people will see and the workman said well what's your problem why do you want to bother with things the public won't see and don't presumably care about Christopher Wren said God will see it God will see it that's what we're saying God will see what kind of citizens we are. God will see what kind of workers we are. And it is him we desire to please. In that frame of mind, God's reborn people in Christ can find grace and strength from his Holy Spirit to obey, 1 Peter two seventeen. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, your fellow Christians. Fear God. Honor the emperor. May God help us to learn these lessons and carry them forward in our times. Father, we confess that we have often been people who rip our government officials up and down. We let them have a day or two in office and then our tongues are full of malice about all that they're doing wrong. I confess my place among that. Father, help us to live as excellent people, people who work for you first and foremost, as citizens, as voters, as employees, as employers in our society. Be glorified in us because we thank you for calling us out of darkness into the light of Christ. Amen.